All right, Genesis chapter 42 this morning. Genesis chapter 42. We took a, took a week off there, so we're, we're getting back on, on course. Genesis chapter 41, we saw a, a very dramatic change in Joseph's fortunes. Uh, he's been sitting in a, in, in a dungeon for, for quite some time, uh, doing as moderately well as one could do in, in a dungeon, but, but still in, in a place where he would much rather not be. At Genesis 41, we saw that change of fortunes takes place, right? He's finally remembered. Uh, there is a need for him in, in Pharaoh's household, and, and Joseph does exactly what is, what is needed. Uh, God gives him the interpretation of that dream. Uh, God gives him the, the advice that needs to be given uh, to Pharaoh. And now Pharaoh, and now Joseph suddenly finds himself number two in the land, right? He's, he's in, a, in a, very different, uh, a very different place than what he had been earlier that day. So a big change has, has taken in Joseph's life. As we pick back up with, with chapter 42, we build off of that. Uh, that position is important for everything that, that comes after this. And, and this is where uh, things get, get interesting for the, for the next few chapters here. Uh, and, and so we'll kick that off here this morning. Uh, before we do that, let's, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll get underway here. Father, we thank you again for the time to be here this morning, the, the time to, to gather around your word uh, the time to worship you, uh, Father, to, to ascribe to you what you are worth, uh, to do it in, in a way that is appropriate and, and fitting for you, and to do it in a way that, that focuses our minds on, on who you are. Father, I, I pray that it is, it is helpful for us here this morning, uh, that it is wholesome uh, for us here this morning to reflect on you, uh, to think about who you are, uh, to think about your attributes, uh, to think about the gifts that you have given to us uh, and the mighty acts that you have performed over and over again, uh, not only in our lives, uh, but in the lives of, of many others as well. Uh, Father, I pray that as we do that, as we see that, as we see that there is, uh, there is no limit to what your hand can accomplish, uh, there is no limit to the, uh, to the difficulties that you can c- cut through and, and, and make a way through, uh, that we are strengthened as a result of that. Our faith in you is strengthened as a result of that. Our, our prayer life is, is strengthened as a result of that because we have seen you, uh, because we have seen what you are capable of doing. Uh, so give us grace this morning, whether it's in the songs that we are singing, uh, whether it's in the passages of Scripture that we are studying, uh, Father, to come away with a better view of you uh, and, and a better view of ourselves in the same time. Uh, Father, give me grace now as, as we look at this passage, Father, to think clearly and speak clearly. Uh, and, and Father, I pray that you are glorified as we think through what you have done. Jesus, name I pray. Amen. As we start into Genesis 42, uh, we kind of find ourselves in the middle of a, of a charade that, that, that is going on here. Uh, it goes on for, for a couple different chapters, uh, and that makes, uh, makes things interesting, uh, to be honest with you here. Um, the temptation is to get focused on what is going on uh, to a degree, right? To get focused on the interactions between uh, Joseph and his brothers, uh, between his brothers and, and the father, and then eventually to, to see that reconciliation that starts to take place in, in 45. But as we look at the, the chapters 42, 43, and 44, ending finally in 45, uh, there's a couple themes that are, that are present for us. And if we keep those themes in mind as we look at these chapters, uh, it becomes a little bit easier to see exactly what is going on despite all the movement and despite all the discussions and despite all the things of which we keep asking ourselves, well, why? <laughs> why, why are you doing that? Uh, the, the three themes, that, at least uh, three themes that we have here, our first off is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Uh, we have a massive problem that still exists in, in chapter 41. Now, now, Joseph is doing much better. He's, he's been raised to a position of prominence, uh, but Joseph and his family are still very much estranged. 
Uh, his brothers have sold uh, Joseph off to, uh, to, into slavery. Uh, Joseph has spent the last um, 20 years, as it were, down, down in Egypt, not, not doing well for, for a good bit of it and then doing a little bit better for the last few years. Um, but, but there is still a, a relationship that needs to be addressed at some point in time. And how do you address that relationship? How do you fix that? Uh, how do you realize that someone's not dead? Uh, that's very good for a movie plot, right? To have someone come back from the dead and say hello, but that's not so good in real life, right? That's not really what you want to have to go through. So there, there are issues that, that are involved here, right? There are, there are difficulties that need to be overcome. How do you, how do you uh, resolve this, this irreconcilable difference that has been caused by, by sin? Who is going to emerge as a leader among Joseph's uh, brothers? Uh, Reuben would be the, the likely candidate for that. Uh, but Reuben, as we'll see even in this chapter, Reuben's not really fit for that. Uh, Reuben's, not, Reuben's not good for much of anything, to be honest with you. Uh, so who is going to become a leader? Uh, you'll remember that a couple weeks ago we spent a good deal of time dealing with Judah. Right? We spent a whole chapter dealing with Judah and his, his sons and lack of sons and then finally sons again. Right? Why, why spend that kind of time? Why, why address that? Well, the author of Genesis is moving things forward, right? Someone needs to be a leader for this family. Someone is going to take, take the helm. Uh, it'll get confirmed for us later on in chapter 49, uh, but there is an issue that needs to be developed. Where are, these, where are these brothers going? Are they maturing? Are they progressing? Or are they still in the same spot we found them when they were selling Joseph down to Egypt, right? There are some, there are some family issues that need to be addressed and reconciliation needs to take place. The second theme that you see is providence. Providence. Um, we have been really perplexed, more or less, by the question of how will God take care of Joseph for most of this time, right? Joseph goes down to Egypt. What's going to happen to him? Is he, is he going to make it out alive? Uh, the life expectancy for a slave at that point is probably not that good, which probably flavors a lot of what the brothers will be expecting uh, when we move into chapter 42. Uh, but that question has been slowly getting answered for us. We have seen that God has continually taken care of Joseph, right? Uh, he has preserved him through, through Potiphar's house. He has dis- uh, preserved him despite Potiphar's wife and, and Potiphar himself. Uh, he has prospered him down in a dungeon where you wouldn't really expect to be doing very well. And finally, God has prospered him tremendously where he's second in the land. He now has a wife. He's got two sons by this point in time. Uh, the, the question of will God take care of Joseph and how will God take care of Joseph is, has been answered for us, and we're, we're seeing the way that that looks. Now the question starts to turn a little more to the family. How is God going to take care of the rest of that family? Uh, we were told uh, in, in chapter 41 that there is a, there is a famine that is coming, right? And it's, gonna be, it's going to be severe. It is going to be awful. God is going to prepare everyone with seven years of plenty. But after that, you're, the, the famine is going to be so bad that you'll forget that there was ever seven years of plenty. It's, it's going to be that bad, that abysmal, and it's going to affect everyone. So what about the rest of those brothers? What about, what about their children that are sitting up in the land of Canaan? How will God provide for them? Will he be able to provide for them? Uh, this question of providence becomes front and center. What is going to happen? How is he going to take care of them? And the final theme is promise. Promise. It's been something that we've looked at a lot as we've gone through the book of Genesis, isn't it? Where we keep seeing covenants being made. We keep seeing prom- promises being given. And we wait for those promises to be fulfilled. Some of them we have seen fulfilled. Some of them are still being waited for, right? And Joseph and his family are no different in this situation. Uh, we remember that Joseph was given dreams when he was a, when he was a 17-year-old brat, 
right? He's getting these dreams that are coming to him, where his brothers are going to be bowing down, uh, where, his, where his brothers and his father and his mother are going to be bowing down to him. What's going to happen with those? Were those really just pie-in-the-sky dreams that, that, that Joseph might have had? Did he just make those up? Was it just that pizza that he ate the night before? What is, it, what is it that is going to take place with those promises? Are those going to be carried out? Um, what will happen with those? We begin to see in chapter 42 that that starts to get answered. We're starting to see finally that that promise that was made 20 years ago, that, that was detailed out and said, this is going to happen. We finally start to see legs starting to appear on that thing, and we start to see where it's going to progress. God, will God keep his promise to Joseph? That's a question that remains to be seen for us. And what about the children of promise that are living again in the land of Canaan? Right? Uh, Jacob has been given the covenant. The children are going to inherit the covenant. What does it look like for them? Can he keep them alive? Can he prosper them? Can he keep them safe despite all of the dangers that now exist around them? What will happen to them? What will happen to the promises of God and to the covenants that he has made with his people? So these are the, these are the themes that we see, and we see the threads of them running through the next few chapters. They're questions that, that nag at us. They're, they're ideas that we're, we're waiting to see. And as we work our way through, we will see them. We will see them worked out. We will see how they begin to progress and to grow and how these issues get addressed. As we look at chapter 42, I want to just kind of work through just the narrative of it. We've got an awful lot that is going on. We have an awful lot of questions that arise as we look at a lot of the things that are going on. And so I want to spend our time this morning looking at the narrative. We'll read it through. Uh, we'll discuss what is, what is going on there. And then I want to give you two points of application when we come out at the end, okay? Uh, so that's, that's, how we'll, that's how we'll proceed this morning. Uh, let me start by reading verses 1 through 5 as we start to see this, this crisis that is beginning to unfold. Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. The ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. So as we left off in, in chapter 41, and we saw that famine beginning to, to descend on the, on the land in verse 43, or verse 53 rather, of, of chapter 41, uh, we saw that the famine was, was across the face of the earth. If you look at verse 56, and the famine was spread over the face of all the earth. So while Pharaoh's dream impacted Egypt specifically, and the recommendations were for Egypt specifically. Uh, everyone is impacted by that. Canaan is impacted by that. And presumably much of the rest of the Middle East is impacted by that. There is this famine that is, that is spreading across everywhere. And Canaan is no, is no exception to that. Canaan is, is solidly in this, in this situation. And so you can see here in verse 1 of chapter 42 that Jacob is looking at the situation and he's saying something really needs to be done. Right, so apparently things were, things were, whatever store they might have laid aside already, uh, whatever provision they had, they must have been starting to at least start eating into it or have eaten into it up to a point where they said, if we continue at this point, we're not, we're not going to make it. We're going we're gonna to die. And so Joseph, uh, or pardon me, Jacob looks at his, at his boys and says, why are you staring at each other? It's probably one of the rudest ways you could probably have expressed this idea, right? Like, what are you, what are you guys doing? Just sitting over there on your hands. 
And so it tells them to get up, get busy, right? We, we, we've got to go, we've got to go get some grain. And we have heard that there is grain down in Egypt. Uh, you'll notice there in verse 5, the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Uh, you could very well imagine that, that Jacob may have seen this, this, this trickle, this, this stream of individuals passing through the land of Canaan, and they're all going to one place. Everyone has heard that Egypt has grain. Everyone has heard that if you're going to stay alive at this point in time, it's going to have to come from Egypt. And so Jacob knows that this is where they need to go, and Jacob sends his sons down there to gather food, except for, except for Benjamin. Right? Benjamin is held back. Uh, you could view this easily as ten sons being expendable. Uh, and this is where you start to see that the reconciliation that we've talked about there being one of those themes that is presented for these, four last, for these next three chapters. This is where things start to, you start to realize that's going to be tougher than you think it might be, right? Uh, what is it that caused a lot of the animosity between Joseph and his brothers to begin with? It was his favoritism. Now, now Joseph contributed to it. Joseph was over there blabbing about his dreams. Uh, Joseph is over there bringing back bad reports about his brothers. Joseph is doing plenty to antagonize his brothers in his own right. But one of the core issues is the fact that Joseph was the favorite of Jacob. And Jacob has not done anything to address that situation. If anything, it's probably gotten worse. He would at least have dispatched Joseph out to do things and to accomplish things. Here it seems that Jacob is holding Benjamin as close to him as he possibly could, lest something happen to that last son of Rachel. Right? So is that situation with the brothers probably getting any better? Probably not. That envy is probably still present. That jealousy is probably still present. They're expendable. They can be, they can be lost. They can be, they can be used to go out and get different tasks. But they're not nearly as loved as Benjamin will be. And so you can very well imagine that the difficulties are going to be present as you try to approach reconciliation because it's not as if everyone has matured out of these things magically, right? Those mentalities, those factors that were present from the beginning are still there. Jacob is still being Jacob. The brothers are still faced with their own relationship issues with their father. There are problems that are present, and 20 years has not wiped it all away, right? There are going to be challenges that are, that are faced here. So the crisis that begins, right? We have, a, we have a crisis in the land. We need to go get food, and we can understand that this family still is, is not in much better shape than it would have been earlier. In verse 6, then, we start to see where reconciliation begins to, begins to finally get some, uh, some, some movement here. If you look in verse 6 of chapter 42, it says, Now Joseph was the ruler over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And they said to him, No, my lord, but your servants, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. He said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go out from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one 
of you that you may get your brother while you remain confined, so that your words may be tested whether there is truth in them. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So we put them all uh, in jail together for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go. Carry grain for the famine of your uh, households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and you will not die. And they did so. And then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to store every man's money in his sack, and he gave them provisions for the journey, and thus it was done to them. This is where the, the charade uh, begins, doesn't it? This is where everything starts to get kind of muddy. What is, what is going on, and, and, and why do we have these things uh, going on? Um, as we watch Joseph over the next few chapters, we realize that Joseph very quickly is in a very superior position to his brothers, and he's in a superior position for, for several different reasons. Uh, number one, he's the ruler of the land. All right, if ever there was a position to be in, uh, Joseph, Joseph's got it here. He is, he is number two. He has basically all of, the, all of the resources of the kingdom at his disposal. If he needs to do something, he can get it done. If he wants to do something, he can get it done. And this puts him in a place to be able to, to accomplish some things that any other person in this situation, and certainly not his brothers, uh, could have accomplished. Uh, we'll see the way that he'll use his, his servants. You notice that there in, uh, in verse 25, right? Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore each man's money in his sack. Right? Joseph is able to, to send his servants. We'll see him using his steward at multiple situations. We see him using servants in other situations to go and, and to pour, form little, little operations, little, little tasks that he sends them for that really ends up throwing the brothers for a loop. We'll find them absolutely disturbed uh, by the time you get to chapter 20, verses 26 and onward. They are, they are terrified by the things that Joseph is able to accomplish uh, because he's able to have these resources. Joseph is also able to throw them into prison if he wants to. Right, so when it comes to a position of superiority, uh, when it comes to the, the, uh, having the upper hand, Joseph has the upper hand because he's, he's number two. Uh, right? he's, he's in a good spot. Uh, secondly, Joseph is in a superior position because he knows more than his brothers know. Uh, you'll notice that when, when they appear to him uh, in verse uh, 6, uh, they bow down before him. And you'll notice in verse 7, he recognized them. Uh, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. Joseph has the benefit of being able to recognize his brothers, but his brothers do not have the benefit of doing the same in return. Now, why is that? Why is it that, that it's so easy for Joseph, but it's not easy for them? Part of it could be 20 years. Right? Part of, 20 years will, will change a lot of things. Uh, it would have changed Joseph substantially, but it would have also changed his brothers as well. That, that's, a, that's a two-way street. That works in, in both directions here. So it seems more likely that it is probably Joseph's office, Joseph's position, that probably has him disguised in a way that they're not going to be recognizing. Also, do they expect him to even be alive? I don't think that they do, right? And so would you be looking for Joseph uh, to, to be standing in front of you? The answer is no. 
Oftentimes, if you're not looking for something, you don't, you don't see it. You're not, you're not prepared for that. You're not, you're not waiting for that. And I think this is part of the brother's problem. They, they would not possibly come to the conclusion, you and I would not possibly anticipate that Joseph would be ruler over the land at this point in time, after 20 years. Right? And so Joseph has a distinct advantage. He understands more of what is going on. He sees more of what is going on uh, than his brothers do. He also understands his brothers. Uh, you'll notice there the, the, little, uh, the little trick that he's having fun with in verse 23. Uh, they did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. Here's Joseph. He's, a, he's an official Egyptian by, by all appearances, by all offices, by all standards. And so when these shepherds come from Canaan, what does he need? Well, he needs an interpreter. Or does he? <laughs> he doesn't need an interpreter. He knows exactly what's going on. And so Joseph, uh, Joseph is not only party to the official uh, conversation that is taking place between the brothers, but Joseph is able to listen to the unofficial parts of the conversation, right? The parts that the interpreter are not involved with, right? He's just listening to everything that's going on. He finds out for the first time that Reuben had nothing to do with what happened to him to, to a degree. Reuben was trying to do something to save him. Uh, so, so Joseph is in this position of knowing more than his brothers know at every turn, right? He knows who they are. He could expect that they could be alive. He might even suspect that they may show up at some point in time if the famine is all over the place. Uh, they, they don't share in that. They don't share in the knowledge of who he is, and they can't get to the point of understanding of who he is there or seeing him. The third thing that we see that I think that is superior about Joseph's position here is that Joseph can see God's hand at work. And I don't think the brothers can see this. I don't think the brothers maybe are even sensitive to this, and especially until some of these events start to unfold. But Joseph is, Joseph is a little more attuned to what is going on there. You'll notice there in verse 9, I think this is, this is highly significant for us. Verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. As soon as the brothers show up and they bow before him, what is this trigger in Joseph? He says, oh yeah, that thing. Now, I don't know if this remembering means that he had kind of forgotten about it, and now the memories come rushing back. I don't know if this is something where Joseph has been thinking about this for 20 years. Wouldn't you think about this for 20 years? Uh, wouldn't you be sitting there thinking, uh, maybe when you're interpreting the, the butler's dream, uh, maybe when you're interpreting the baker's dream, maybe when you're interpreting Pharaoh's dream, at each of those moments, do you go back and you, does Joseph sit back and say, well, I had a dream once, but I don't see that coming to pass. And maybe it's at this moment when his brothers stand before him that he goes, oh, <laughs> that's what's going on. That's what is getting ready to take place. By, certainly by verse 9, there is something that is going on in Joseph's mind. He is, the wheels are, are beginning to spin in his mind. I don't know that he would have anticipated this. I don't know that as he, as he took this position, as he began to prepare, did he think maybe at some point I will see my fathers and my brother again? But at this time, he is certainly beginning to think in this direction that, that God may finally be beginning to, to, to bring this thing to pass. The other big question that I have in my mind, and I don't think there's any way of answering this, is at what point does Joseph reach the conclusion that you see in 45 verses 5 through 8 or 50, 20, where he understands very clearly that while my brothers did all of these things to me for evil, God meant this for good. When does Joseph reach that conclusion? And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I don't see where the narrator gives us any clue as to what that is. He obviously has reached that point by chapter 45. But has he reached that by 42? Has he reached that by 43? Has he reached that by 44? 
Right? Where, where is it that Joseph can begin to look back and say, I see the hand of God. I see that he is using me to provide, not only for Egypt, but he might possibly be using me to provide for my brothers and for my father as well. When does he reach that point? And I don't know when that is. I do think that you, we need to be able to take that into account when you look at the rest of his actions as he's, as he's working through this this, this shir- the charade with the rest of his brothers, uh, there is an understanding that Joseph has. What, however it may be growing, wherever state it may be here in chapter 42, it's progressing. It's moving. To at least where he gets to 45, he does see this. And so there's got to be some kind of, uh, some kind of calculation made when we look at his actions to understand that Joseph is seeing the hand of God in a way that his brothers are not. Right? Joseph is, and this makes Joseph in a much more superior position. Joseph opens this reconciliation uh, with a, a, a move that's probably not considered very orthodox. Uh, he accuses them. Now, is that normally a very good way of opening reconciliation? That is not. Right? That, that's not the way that we go about doing this. But Joseph does do this, right? He charges them and accuses them of being spies. You see there in verse 9, right? You are spies. Now, he knows who they are. Are they spies? No. So why, why go through this, right? Why do we start this, this charade that begins here in verse 8 and goes all the way on? Why do we do this? I think there's a couple different reasons that we need to, we need to think about because this, these questions do kind of bother us a little bit. Uh, number one, don't forget that Joseph is part of the state now. Uh, you can argue that by the fact that Joseph is number two in the land, Joseph practically is the state at this point in time, right? Uh, there is official business that Joseph is charged with, and that is his role and responsibility in this position, okay? Now, there are a lot of people flooding down to Egypt at this point, at this point in time, right? You see that the stream that is, that is flowing up there in verse 5. You see the, the reference to all the famine being all the lands in, in chapter 41, right? There are a lot of people that are coming down to Egypt, do all of them have good intentions? Probably not. Right? This, is how, this is how states and countries and, and peoples have worked for all time. Right? There, are, there are spies that are being used, and you're using spies to find out what's going on in other places. And so what would Joseph's role be part of? Finding these people out. He's coming in contact with them. He's, he's the one selling them all grain. He's going to have to deal with these situations. Egypt is in a good spot because it has grain. Right? It, it is in a better spot than everyone else. But that also puts a target on Egypt's back, right? What does everyone else really want? They want that food. And if they could find an undefended section, if they could figure out some way of getting their hand on the food, don't you think they would? They most certainly would. That's how these things work. And so I think there is a, there is a reasonable expectation that Joseph may be engaged in this kind of interrogation on a semi-regular basis, right? Dealing with these individuals, addressing whether or not they may be spies, assessing whether or not they may be spies. There may be something about this that, that's kind of protocol at this point in time. The second thing, though, about Joseph's uh, charge is that Joseph is looking for information. Joseph desperately wants to know two things. He wants to know about his father, and he wants to know about his brother Benjamin. And how do you get information out of someone? Well, a really good way of doing that is by accusing them, right? If you're accused of, a spy, of being a spy, what are you going to do? Well, you're going you're to sing like a bird, 
Right? You're going you're to marshal out every piece of information that you could possibly offer in order to try to get out of the situation. How, how do I prove that I'm not a spy? Well, let me tell you about my brother. Let me tell you about my father. Let me tell you about the, the cow that I own back sitting uh, tied up to that tree. Let me, let me tell you about everything you might want to know because I want this to be the farthest thing that, uh, removed from your mind when you think about me. I do not want you to think about me being a spy. Right? These guys are singing because that's the only way that you're going to possibly prove that you are not what you're being accused of. And for Joseph, this falls exactly into what he wants. He wants to know information. He wants to know about the welfare of his brother and about his father. And this is probably the best way that he could have accomplished it. So Joseph, Joseph shows a good degree of shrewdness uh, as, he, as he carries this out, which makes me think this goes back to part of his role as being part of the state. He's, he's doing this on a regular basis. He understands how this world works and what he needs to do. If you accuse them of being a spy, how do you back that up? How do you keep that charade going? You throw them in jail. That's what you do. And I think that's the only real explanation for what you see there in, verse, uh, in verses 15 through 16, right? Uh, you, you may wonder, why, why put your brothers in jail? You know who they are. You know they're not spies. How do you make this stick? How do you continue this, this, this performance that you're doing? Well, you run it all the way out. And that's exactly what Joseph is doing. He throws them all in jail. And I think it's as simple as that. Now, it's possible that this could be seen as something of a, of a, of a punishment, and we'll deal with that here in a minute. Uh, but I don't think so. I think this is, this is him running this, this charade all the way out as far as he needs to do so that they understand exactly what is going on here. You'll notice that even though he throws them all in jail, end uh, of verse 16, he switches, doesn't he? Right? He changes his mind after about three days. I don't know what that's for. I don't know if that's to make him sweat a little bit, right? Again, if he's in this position, does he understand how to do that? He does. He understands how this works. Uh, Does Joseph need a few days to try to figure out what he needs to do, right? This is a bit of a shock, I should think, even for Joseph. While he may recognize it, I don't know that he was anticipating seeing his brothers again like that. He may need a couple days to think about what's what's going on there. Uh, So I don't know why the timing is the way it does, but you'll notice that he does flip it around. Rather than jailing all of them and sending one of them back, he jails one of them and sends the rest of them back. As you think about him doing that, I think that kind of tips some of what Joseph's hand uh, is looking like and what he has on his mind. Number one, I think Joseph is genuinely concerned for his family. Joseph is genuinely concerned with his family. How much food can one person take back? You cannot take back that much food, right? Even if you give all the donkeys to him and then you send them on his way, you cannot take that much food back. How much food can nine people take back? They could take back a lot more. Right? I think this is one of the cases where you see Joseph's um, kindness and his concern for his family being evidenced. Right? Yes, I'm going to keep one of them behind. Yes, that looks harsh. Yes, that is harsh. But this is a way of making sure uh, that the people, that my loved ones, that my father and the rest of that family are going to get the food that they need. He is genuinely concerned about that. It also gives him the benefit of a hostage. What is, who does he want to see? He wants to see his brother. He wants to see Benjamin. He's concerned with Benjamin's well-being. How do you ensure that? You get leverage, right? You get a hostage, right? Now you have to come back. You're gonna, if you want to buy food, if you want to continue to do what you're doing right now, you're going to have to bring my brother back to me, which is exactly what, what Joseph wants. This is a, a sign of Joseph's concern for his family. He is genuinely concerned for his family. Another conclusion we might reach is that Joseph is punishing his brothers. Now, I think that's probably one of the more natural conclusions we could meet. 
Um, I don't actually think that's what's going on here, but, but I can see where I might be tempted to do that, and you might be tempted to do that. Some of you are laughing. You would do that, uh, right? Uh, it is, it's hard not to reach that conclusion, though, right? Uh, but when I look at the, at the overall tone that Joseph is taking with his brothers, there's, there's an underside of concern and there's an underside of generosity all the way through, right? When he is, if you look at verse 25, when he's continuing this charade again, right, and he's giving them their food and he's sending them back, what does he put back in their, in their bags? He gives them their money back. Now, this is setting up a, a whole horror for, for, for Jacob and everyone else involved, but what does that essentially mean he is doing for his family? He's giving them free food, right? He is, he is doing exactly what I think he really most wants to do. He is giving them the food that they need for free. It's consistent with what he will do when he brings them into the land and gives them, this is the land of Goshen, have it. Right? This is consistent with what he seems to want to do. While this is an odd way of going about it, and while I would not have thought about doing it this way, I think that when you look at the undercurrent of everything that is going on, you see someone who is concerned and generous. I don't think that he's, that he's punishing them. However, thirdly, is he testing his brothers? That I do think he's doing. Right? We're talking about reconciliation here. Right? How are we going to get these, these folks together again? Is there any trust at all? It can't be, right? If you've been sold into slavery, if, you, if your brothers take you and, and, and sell you to some Ishmaelites and send you on down the road, do you trust anyone at this point? I don't think you do, right? Uh, can, he, can he trust his brothers? Are they, are they trustworthy? Uh, can he trust that his brother's still alive? If they were willing to do that to Joseph, what might they be willing to do to Benjamin? Is Benjamin really alive or not? I don't know. Could they lie about with their father's well-being? Did they care about their, his father's well-being when they sold Joseph down to Egypt? They did not. Right? Can, can you trust these people at all? I don't think you can, and I think Joseph knows it. I think there is an element that is taking place here in this story where Joseph is testing his brothers. Where, where are you guys at? Right? Have things changed in 20 years? I know what you did 20 years ago, but what are you doing now? What are you about now? I think Joseph is testing them. The fourth possibility of what is going on is that Joseph is teaching his brothers. Um, I'm a little less convinced about this, but I do think that God is doing this uh, through the middle of the story, which I think is instructful for us. When you think about what happens with Simeon, uh, it's hard not to notice the similarities between what happens with Simeon here and what happens with Joseph uh, earlier on, right? Everyone is kept down in a pit for a little while. Everyone is suddenly, suddenly Simeon is, is bound up and, and kept in a dungeon for, for as long as it takes for the brothers uh, to, to leave and go back to Canaan and come back. And it takes a little bit. They, they dilly-dally some uh, because they don't really want to come back. Right? There's, there's a journey that has to be made. I don't know how long, we don't know how long Simeon is in there, but he's not just in there overnight. He's in there for some period of time. Right? It, it's hard not to miss that this is roughly analogous to what happened with Joseph. Right? Um, does Joseph deliberately set this up uh, as, uh, uh, to teach them a lesson? Or is this something that God is using through, through Joseph to, to bring this to their path, to, to come to mind? Reuben, you can tell, is certainly thinking about this. Notice in verse 22, what does Reuben say? Did I not tell you? Told you so. All right, this guy's annoying. This guy, this guy is good for absolutely nothing. All he really manages to do in verse 22 is to wash his hands of the situation. Didn't I tell you you weren't supposed to have done this, Right? This is, this is Joseph's probably first and only opportunity to realize what Reuben's role in this would or would not have been, right? Uh, Reuben had walked away by the time uh, that, that these guys sell him, and so he wouldn't have known what was going on there. 
Is it possible that, Jake, that Joseph then looks and says, well, if Reuben's not responsible, who's next on the list? Simeon. Simeon's the second oldest. This could be what, what Joseph's logic is. Um, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that's what it is, but, but there is an argument that could be made for that. I do most certainly think that God is doing that through this, right? Reuben here is thinking here about what has gone on there. They all say this in verse 21. They said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. What is their mind running back to immediately? What we did with Joseph. Um, when you look down in verse, we haven't made it there, but yet verse 28, end of verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? They see the hand of God being all over this event. And I don't think Joseph can take credit for all of that, but God certainly can, right? He has been, he's orchestrating these events and he's, he is bringing things to their mind and they're remembering what they have done. And they remember Joseph's distress and they remember the cruelty with which they treated him. And they're starting to have some doubts about that, that maybe they haven't had for 20 years. They put that out of their mind. That was, that was over, that was done with. And now, now we're having to think about it. Now we're having to deal with it again. And it is scaring them to death. Uh, they are terrified. So I don't know all of Joseph's reasonings, but those are, those are some that are out there, right? That why, why Joseph could be conducting himself of the way that he is. In verses 26 through 38, we, we see these old wounds being reopened here. Uh, Joseph uh, sends nine of his brothers uh, back down to uh, back up to Canaan. Rather, uh, Simeon is left behind. Again, we don't know exactly why it is that Simeon is left behind, but but Simeon is the one that, that that's going to be staying behind. Uh, Joseph, in verse twenty five, has has filled their bags with grain. That's what they came down for, and he's put all their money back in the sacks. Right, so we have we have free food, uh, and, and they are getting sent back with with money on top of that. Verse twenty six. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there, probably, uh, probably as fast as they could, right? You would, I would be eager to get out of this place at this point. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this God has done to us? When they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies uh, in, the, uh, in the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and, one is, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks, and behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. When they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to him. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall you on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. So verses 26 is really, uh, if, if they thought they were having a great time in Egypt, this is really where the fun begins, when they have to go back and talk to Dad about this, right? Uh, their, their money is, is in their sacks. Uh, they seem to discover this. At least one of them discovers this in verse 27. Uh, it's kind of curious because when you look over in chapter 43, uh, when they're relaying this back to Joseph, they actually say that all of them found their money in the sacks as they were lodging. 
Here they don't seem to find it with their father. So there's some question as to whether or not they really found it with their on the way or whether they found it with dad or whether they just put on a good show uh, when dad showed up. And given these brothers, I wouldn't put it past either of those to be true, right? Uh, but they find that their money is, is still in their bags. And this terrifies them. Why? Why does this terrify them? Because they look like criminals, they look like criminals. Uh, they, have, they have come from the land of Egypt where they were sent to, to, to spend their money to buy grain. They have come back with grain, and what do they also come back with? Come back with their money. Well, how did you get all this money, right? Where did this, where did this come, money come from? Did you, did you steal something along the way? And by the way, where is my son? Where is Simeon, right? Now, they give an answer to him, uh, but you'll notice that it's after they give him the answer that they find the money there in verse 35, right? And, when, and you notice at the end of verse 35, and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were dismayed, right? Jacob and the brothers all are dismayed, right? And, and the question is why? For the brothers' sake, you understand, they look like criminals, right? We're coming back with money that we shouldn't have, and we have food as well. Something, something is not wrong here. But what about Jacob when he sees this situation? You come back with money, and you come back with food, but you don't come back with my son. What do you do with Simeon? What did you do with Simeon? Right? There is a very real possibility that Jacob may be reaching the wondering about whether or not his sons have actually sold Simeon down in Egypt. Which is ironic because who have they sold down to Egypt? They sold Joseph down to Egypt. And you'll notice there how he groups everything together in verse 36. You have bereaved me of my children. Who has bereaved him of his children? You. Who's the you? It's the brothers. Right, You brothers have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. I don't know whether this is Jacob in his grief trying to look for someone to blame, that he looks and blames the brothers. I don't know if Jacob is honestly starting to wonder, are these boys just killing my sons off or selling my sons off right and left? But, Joseph, but Jacob will have no more of what is going on here. Right, You guys cannot be trusted. Right? You keep going off, and, and I keep losing sons as you keep going off. What are you guys doing with my sons? Uh, right? I keep losing these sons here. Right? Uh, what does Reuben offer? Kill my grandsons. Kill, kill your grandsons or whatever. What kind of help is that? What does that do for anything? Right? Reuben is worthless. Right? And, and this is where you start to see Reuben getting written off the scene entirely. Reuben cannot bring any good leadership to bear. Uh, when he's standing in front of Joseph, all he can do is say, I didn't do it. Right? It wasn't me. I told you so. And when he gets back with his father, all he can say, well, you can kill your, kill your grandsons, and that'll, that'll make you feel better if you lose Benjamin. What is, how does that work? Right? Reuben, is, Reuben is losing it. Right? So Reuben really begins to get written off the scene. This is paving the way for Judah in, in chapter 43. Uh, and, and a lot of groundwork is, is, is being laid here as a result of that. As a result of all this, though, Jacob is digging in. Right? You are not going to take my son Benjamin back down to Egypt. Right? I cannot trust you boys. I don't know exactly what is going on, but I am not going to send my son Benjamin to you. If you send him, in verse, uh, notice in verse 38, if, you send, if I send him and he dies, you are going to bring my soul down to the grave. Right? Uh, which is a little bit harsh for Simeon, because what is he not saying about Simeon? He's not saying anything like that about Simeon, right? This favoritism still is, is continuing to sit there. It's still on display. Uh, Simeon is gone, and he's grieving a little bit, but not like he would over Benjamin. Benjamin would kill him. Simeon, well, all right. All right. This is, there, there, there's a lot that is being set in motion here, right? We see uh, Jacob uh, digging in. 
Uh, we see Joseph having kicked off this, this entire charade uh, with his accusation of spies. We see Reuben uh, proving himself to be absolutely worthless and unfit a, as a leader. And we see the brothers going back. And if they're going to come back and get food, what do they have to? who do they have to bring? They've got to bring Benjamin. This is setting up stage for chapter 43 and everything that follows. Now, what can we, what can we draw from, from application here, right? What can we, what can we see uh, going on in this chapter? At number one, we see God working in and through the actions of men. We see God working in and through the actions of men. This is a common conclusion that we've reached as we look in the book of Genesis, isn't it? We see a lot of things that are going on. There's a lot of, a lot of plates in spin at various points of time, and not all of them are good. Uh, we can see Jacob and, and his favoritism. We can see the brothers and, and, their, and their selfishness. We can see, we can see Joseph and, and his hurt that is sitting down there in Egypt and, and, and the pain that has been caused to him. Right? There's an awful lot that is going on here. And somehow these, this reconciliation needs to take place. Somehow providence needs to be uh, taken care of. Somehow promises need to be fulfilled. How do all of those come to pass? And there's only one person that can do it. And it's not Joseph. It's not Joseph. Uh, there's a lot of commentaries that give Joseph a lot of credit for what is going on here. And I admit, I do think Joseph is an intelligent man. I do think Joseph is a capable man. But is he capable of all of this? I don't think so. In chapter 39, verse 2, uh, we are reminded, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. Is it Joseph's credit that he becomes a successful man? No, it's God's credit. God is the one who has taken that to pass. Chapter 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Why does Joseph have success in jail? Is it because of his own, his own capabilities? No, it's because God was with him. God gave him favor to put him in the spot where his capabilities could be exercised. Even as Joseph sits there now as number two in the land, right by Pharaoh's side, why is he there? He should be where still? In jail. What is it that has brought him to number two? It's a dream that Pharaoh has that Joseph is able to interpret. Every step of the way, while Joseph may be an intelligent and a capable man, you cannot ascribe all of this to him. If reconciliation happens to this family, I don't think you can ascribe all of it to Jacob's cleverness in arranging this charade and moving it along like this. God is the one who is doing that. God is using Joseph. God is working through Joseph. God may be working in spite of Joseph in some of these situations, to be honest with you. But God is the one who is orchestrating these events to bring all of those threads to one spot that you can reconcile this family, that you can fulfill the promises that were made, and that God's providence can be given on behalf of this family. So God is working in and through the actions of men. Number two point of application is that reconcilia reconciliation is necessary because of sin, and it's complicated by sin. We find ourselves in the situation that we're in in chapter 42 because of sin. Is this a mess that you would want to try to clean up? Would you want to try to arrange how you're, how you're going to expose Joseph as still being alive and, and bring the brothers down here and, and get them all in one spot and say, by the way, you did wrong and you've got to kill all this and, and bring, bring Jacob down with all of his favoritism that he's got and get them all together and put them in a room and sort that all out? Would you want to sort that all out? I would not. It's a mess, right? And it's a mess that has been caused by sin. It is a mess that is, that is sprung from sin and it is a mess that sin is continuing to foul up. Jacob hasn't changed in any way. The brothers are still, with, still feeling with the exact same situations that their brothers uh, saw earlier. Joseph has lost 20 years. 
20 years of his life down in Egypt as a result of the consequences of what is going on here. There are very real problems that are present, and they are still present because sin is still present and complicating the matter even more and more and more. But who is able to bring reconciliation to this? It's God. God can bring reconciliation to this. And I think that's important to us. We, we find ourselves in our own little messes, right? We find ourselves in relationships that have issues. We find ourselves in situations that, that we struggle to deal with. Maybe it's a, a coworker. Maybe it's a, another person in the church. Uh, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend, right? And there is a division. There is a split. And it's caused by sin, right? Some form or another, it's caused by sin. Can reconciliation be brought? Can reconciliation be had? And the answer is yes. God can bring it about. That does not mean that there are consequences, that there are not consequences, right? You still have Joseph with a loss of 20 years. Uh, you, still have, uh, you still have Joseph's brothers struggling to believe that he's really honest with them at the, end of, at the end of Genesis after his father dies, right? There are consequences to actions. But God brings about reconciliation to a very messy situation. And he does it beautifully. And he does it well. That should inform our expectations. That should inform our prayers. That should bring us to a point when we are dealing with our own reconciliation to not come to the conclusion and say it's hopeless, it's lost, it's, it's beyond saving. There's nothing that can be done here. If God can bring reconciliation in a situation that's as messy as this, that's as ugly as this, he can bring reconciliation about in an awful lot of other situations that we probably aren't allowing him to or aren't looking for him to do, and we should be. Joseph and his brothers, as we watch them get reconciled, as God slowly brings that that process in, in motion and slowly brings that to a result, we see and understand that God is capable of doing that and can be trusted to do that and should be trusted to do that more often than we often do. Right? So these are, these are lessons for us. As we, as we look at the mess, as we look at the charade, as we try to understand why, right, there are lessons for us, lessons that we need as we go about our daily lives. Father, I thank you for what you've given us in this chapter. Uh, Father, we, we admit that it's, it's a bit of a mess. It's, it's confusing. Uh, we don't understand all of the motivations uh, that, that are going on with the different individuals. Uh, but Father, we can see the architect who's behind it. We can see the one who is accomplishing his purposes despite uh, the best or the worst efforts of men. Uh, Father, you are, are, are glorious in that capacity. You are able to see all things. You, you, you are able to, to know all things. You are able to bring whatever it is you want to pass to pass. And you do it. And you do it in a way that brings you glory. You do it in a way that, that leaves us in awe, that, that anyone could clean this up and bring it to a resolution. And so, Father, I pray that this gives us hope. I pray that this strengthens our trust in you, uh, Father, as we watch you through various situations, Father, that are, uh, that are tangled, that seem to be impossible. And I pray that we trust in you as we deal with our, our, our relationships, Father. Uh, things, situations that cause us uh, great amounts of harm, uh, great amounts of, of, of pain and, and suffering, Father. And sometimes we don't trust you with them. Uh, Father, I pray that we will do that. I pray that we will give those to you and that we will be able to watch you bring about results to those situations that perhaps we wouldn't have dared to trust because we see what you're able to do here. So give us grace, Father, to, to glorify you for who you are and for what you do, and give us grace to trust you practically in our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.